The words we've sung and the words from Scripture we have heard, they apply especially to you young people. But I believe to all of us, like those words from the Old Testament of God who spoke to the nation of Israel, that he knew them and knew them by name, so he knows you by name. But I want to focus on from the second reading, the many resurrection appearances that are mentioned there. Verse 7, then Jesus appeared to James. Those words, let's think about them as you're seated. And then he appeared to James. I've got a lot of cousins. My dad's family was really quite large. And so given that, there were a lot of us cousins. My mom's family, pretty large too. Put them all together and there were lots of relatives at my level, so to speak. In reading this verse, then Jesus appeared to James. Two of those cousins come sharply into focus for me. Two of them, uh, Rick was one, a youngster with Down syndrome, who was very limited in what he could say, what he could do, what he could understand. A great guy, but never were fully able to connect with him except his parents were able to do that a lot better than the rest of us. Then there was Jimmy. He was high-functioning for ones with Down syndrome. They staked his age at about eight years old, and he was a delightful cousin. I loved Jimmy. He was fun-loving. He was engaging. He was an active part of the family, and he lived he lived well beyond what's expected for a person like him. In fact, it was in his mid-50s that he finally was laid to rest. And when he died, it was special, even as he was special. The, The grief went deep because he was who he was, and we lost that young man who turned to be an older man. Now remember this verse and then Jesus appeared to James because that's the verse that the pastor used at his funeral to talk not only about Jimmy but to talk about Jesus and their relationship one with another you know being a younger man and in the ministry at that point I thought gee this is different that he should choose a passage like this and James being one person and Jimmy another, that he should bring them together. I mean, I had been out of seminary and I learned you'd pick up the Bible and you read it and you dig deeply and you find all of its theological implications and understandings. That's where you preach. And it didn't quite resonate with me at that point. But then I grew and I grew up. And I remember I came to the awareness of just how profound that was that the pastor spoke about my cousin, even as St. Paul wrote, then Jesus appeared to James. And my takeaway from all of it was this, that faith in Jesus is very personal. And that's what these young people sitting before us today That's what they're all about. And that's a witness for you, young people, that Jesus is personal. Your faith is very 
very personal. That's why you're sitting at the front where nobody ever sits. And that's why you are in gowns, because of this special time following up to baptism. Jimmy, but then James. James, described in the New Testament as the brother of our Lord. And you, do you realize that Jesus had brothers? There were four of them all together. There was Joseph and Simon and Judas, uh, the, the other Judas, and then there was James. Four brothers that Jesus had. And sisters, yes, Matthew chapter 13 and Mark's gospel also attest to the fact, although we, they didn't and we don't know, they didn't mention how many sisters. But the gospel seemed to indicate that they had an interesting relationship with Jesus, their brother. They weren't quite sure about him as the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, I can understand that, quite frankly, for if I were in their place to look at my brother and say he's the Savior of the world. But that's another story. James, however, was different. James was on another page than his brothers and sisters. According to this passage, and according to later developments as expressed in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. James was the only one here in 1 Corinthians as the brother of Jesus who's mentioned that Jesus appeared to. James and Jesus. Why? I I'm not sure. 1 Corinthians doesn't tell us, but maybe it was because James was Jesus' brother. But maybe it was also because James would become one of the leaders of the Christian movement after Jesus left the earth. And that part is pretty clear as we read the book of Acts of the Apostles in chapters 15 and 21. But again, my takeaway with James, as with Jimmy, is that faith in Jesus was very, very personal. Last week I spoke about another appearance of Jesus that Paul recorded in 1 Corinthians, his appearance of 500 people all at one time, a church full and more, although I don't know that they were in church, but a, a corporate body. And I, I focused there how we are a body, the, the body of Christ, and that our faith is one that's shared among us all. And now, now you've heard me say that faith is very personal, that it is individual. So it, am I contradicting myself between last week and this? No, 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 no. Don't get the wrong idea. These two go together. They are like, if you will, two sides of a coin. Faith is corporate, even as we come together as God's people, as we encourage and strengthen one another. And it is individual. It is for you, for me. Jesus is for us one at a time. Because you see, right after the mention, if you put this together in 1 Corinthians 15, right after the mention of Jesus appearing to 500, he focuses on some individuals to whom Jesus appeared, James included. Faith is personal. But there are dangers, as there are dangers with anything, with dangers with our understanding of this truth. 
And that is to forget, to live like, to, to think like we're not connected to each other, that we're not part of a bigger body, that there is a corporate nature to us as Christians as well, that we are Christians together, circling around Jesus Christ. And you'll, you'll remember that this is a tendency with which we're born. You go back to the beginning with Eve and Adam, and they were perfect. They were made in the image of God, but they weren't satisfied with that. They reached out and they ate the forbidden fruit. They did so because they thought they knew better than God. It be, they became self-centered and egocentric, you might say. And that got passed along to people after people so that we didn't get a choice when we were born. The New Testament says we share that same malady within us, that tendency, that, that nature of being I-centered rather than God-centered. And sometimes that shows up in our faith where it's all about me. It's all about me and Jesus. Or somebody with that line of thinking can say, you know, I, I don't want to go to church because I don't get anything out of it. What is that to say it's all about me? And that there is a bigger dimension to being together in worship. That we expect it all to be about me, me, me all the time. Yeah, faith is personal, but it's not only personal. Sometimes there's the danger of saying, you know, my God wouldn't do this, or my God would do that, or my Bible tells me this. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But it can lead to a misunderstanding that it's just mine, that it's just my own personal God tucked away in my head and in my heart. And it's not a God of all of Christian people. And so we act differently. So we need to keep these two in tension. We need to keep these two together. But picking up on the truth of Jesus appeared to James, what does that look like that faith is personal in our lives? It seems to me that on the one hand, we need to remember and to understand, like my cousin Jimmy, and I'm sure James, that Jesus lived, he died, he rose again from the dead for you. For you, you individually are important to God. And you who are about to confirm your faith, Jesus is for you. That's a personal faith. Although you're gonna confess things together like a congregation does, at the same time, Jesus came for you. He called you by name, and he called you to be in relationship with him. This is not just a truth to be learned. It's not a general understanding that Jesus came for the whole world. He did, but in that whole world, for you. God so loved the world. We know that passage from John 3, 16. Somebody once said, you know, change it a little bit and make it your own. God so loved me that he came into the world, that I would be saved. That's the two intention. That's the two that are important. Jesus died and lived 
for you. Grab hold of it, own it, and live like it. Just like in Holy Communion, Jesus comes very individually to each and every one of us. We receive him in bread and in wine. He lives in us personally so that we can live in him. That faith is yours. Yours as you take it to heart, led by God himself to embrace Jesus one-on-one. This is the most valuable intellectual property you will ever have. But it's not just intellectual. It's spiritual. It is a reality that goes beyond the thinking, goes beyond what is objective. It is also, it is also, not only, but also subjective. Nobody else can believe for you. Nobody. It's your personal faith. And remember, this is not private. There's understanding that's not on target these days that faith is private. Keep it to yourselves. It's personal. And said or not said, the implication is it's private. In other words, I don't want to see your faith. I don't want to hear from you about your faith. Just do it and do it alone and make it personal. Well, I have a question. Do other people know that you're Christian, those of us who are? Do they know that it is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we believe and confess and live by? How how about your co-workers? How about your neighbors? How about your friends, young people, that go beyond this school and are in your neighborhood and elsewhere? When I grew up, I assumed something. And there was some truth to it. And that was everybody's Christian. Everybody around me, everybody I knew, well, they seemed to be Christian. And that was my circle in life. But today, not so much. Not near as much as it was. I didn't feel like I had to speak about my faith. Live it, yes, but speak about it. Well, everybody knew that. And that's what it was. Today, we live it, but we also speak it. And it doesn't mean we give a theological explanation to what the Bible's all about or any one thing that the Bible is about. That's our faith. But we can speak about our faith personally by saying what God means to me, what God has done in my life, what I've seen God get me through right now or in the past, by faith in what God will do. That's rooted in objective fact, but it's personal. The Bible says that God will give you, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say, and say them we must, and say them we can, because our faith is personal, but it's not private. It, It can't be. It shows itself. And that's what personal faith looks like. It is our Christian life. It's your Christian life. People see and they experience you. And part of you, a big part of you, is your faith, which distinguishes you as God's child. Somebody once said, and I've remembered it because it is so true, even though many would people, many people would call it trite. The saying was this, your life is the only Bible 
many people will read. Catch it? Your life is the only Bible many people will read. Your life, personally, it is about you personally along with Jesus. And it speaks. It speaks loudly. As people from the outside look at what Christians are doing, thumbs up or thumbs down. It can be led to Christ or that can be led away from Christ. But this is what a personal faith does. It speaks. People see and they experience you. And that's where, as Christians, we talk about a worldview, how we see and perceive the world as Christians, a Christian worldview, the lens through which we see the world and through which we operate in the world with Christ as the lens, what he said, what he's done, and how he's led us to live. Do you know what research says? It says that even among Christians, less than 10% view the world from a Christian point of view. I understand that in part because there's so many other views around us. And those views rub off on us daily at every turn, lots of different ways. And perhaps our Christian lens, our worldview gets blurry and we can't see it or even reject part of what God in Jesus is all about and how it gets translated in how we think and live. Do you know, you've noticed this. Those have been around when our acolytes put out the candles. They put them all out until the last one when they relight the taper and carry it out. That's to remind us that we take the light of Christ into the world to live. He's the one in whom our life centers and through whom we live. 1 Corinthians, it's a great chapter. Chapter 13 is well known as the love chapter. Remember that from weddings and other places? 1 Corinthians is the resurrection chapter. It begins, as you heard it read a few moments ago, like the Apostles' Creed, into which you young people have been baptized. And it's that creed you're going to speak and make it your own personal affirmation today. Even though you've made it your own already, you're going to make it public on your own today. Jesus came for you, one by one by one. And he put us into a relationship with each other, the greater church. Did you see? The cross. Keep the cross in mind. Jesus on the cross and what he's done as he's come for you and he's put us corporately into a relationship with each other. Jesus called his disciples one by one by one and he put them together in a group to live in faith. Jesus appeared to James, his brother. And then as we read further in this morning's reading, also then to Saul, who became Paul, and to James. Cousin Jimmy taught me a lot about lots of things, but especially about this. James, Jimmy, you, you, and I, in Christ, in life. Amen. Amen.